Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a brand new podcast, Stories Out of Time and Space, the sci-fi movie review podcast. My name's Scott Weatherly, and I'm one of your hosts, and I will be accompanied on this journey by my co-host, Julian Darius. Julian, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here, Scott. Yeah, it's going to be good. We're going to be covering some exciting topics. We're going to be covering some exciting films. This uh, podcast, it's going to cover... All kinds of sci-fi films. This is going to be covering all kinds of themes, topics, uh, any any year really. And I'm, I'm I'm excited to be covering such a sort of a vast genre. Um, so many things we can be get you know digging into on this one. Yeah, absolutely. And so for this first season, we're going to do ten films, and yep. uh, we've selected them in unison, and uh, we'll do them in chronological order. Yeah, it's a bit of a taster's choice, a bit of a buffet, really, isn't it? It was five of five from me, five from you, and they're sort of just films that we wanted to talk about, and there's some interesting things in there. Uh, some, I would say, highbrow, and some not so highbrow, but all of them actually some pretty some pretty solid films in there. I'm actually really excited to talk about. Yeah, I'm right. thrilled to talk about it, and I'm sure some of them will will both love, and some of them will disagree on, and yeah. have some lively conversations. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to be starting with one that. I'll be in. This one's an interesting one um, because of the period it was released and its impact on the genre. Uh, so today's film is Forbidden Planet from 1956, directed by Fred Wilcox, written by Cyril Hume, but based on a previous script by Alan Alder and Irving Block, uh, starring Leslie Nielsen as Commander John Adams, Walter Pigeon as Dr. Morbius, Anne Francis as Alteria Morbius, I might have said that completely wrong, and Warren Stevens as Lieutenant Doc Ostro. So it's uh, it's got, you know, a solid cast and odd, you know, when people say Leslie Nielsen these days, they think of something completely different as to what you were going to get from this film. Um, but uh, I'll yeah, I a... don't even know who Leslie Nielsen is unless O.J. Simpson's next film. That's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that opens up a whole can of worms. Um so I'll give a quick synopsis of this film because I'm not entirely sure of, of all the films we're going to cover. There's a few that I'm not sure how many people will actually know the story. They'll probably know of all of them, but um, this one's sort of of an, an earlier period. So a crew is sent to a remote island, uh, sorry, a remote planet, Altair 4, to investigate the reason for its radio silence. Upon arrival, the crew find that all but two of the colonists are dead the victim of a mysterious planetary threat. Dr. Morbius and his adult daughter, Eltair, try to encourage the crew to leave. However, their ship is sabotaged, which means they have to stay to finish repairs. Over time, several of the crew show an interest in Eltair and find out more about the secrets Dr. Morbius is hiding, specifically advanced alien Krell technology. So that's sort of a 
a summary, really, of the film. It doesn't cover half the things that happen. But so we'll start with a general overview of our thoughts on this film. And, and Julian, I'll throw it over to you. What's your what are your thoughts, general thoughts about this film? Well, I freaking love it. Uh, I'm amazed how much I still love it. I'm amazed how much it holds up. Mm. Um, you know, a, a, a few immediate thoughts upon rewatching it. I mean, first of all, I like it way more than, you know, any Marvel movie or any blockbuster of the last 20 years. Um, you know, I, uh, I think its special effects hold up tremendously well. Uh, I'm constantly shocked by how much I love the imagination and the special effects. And I think sometimes older movies, like I'm amazed by special effects in like the silent period where mm. they just went for stuff that nowadays, uh, I mean, I guess you could do it with CGI, but nowadays you'd say, oh, well, that's going to be $2 million for that, you know, 30 seconds of, of CGI. Um, and 15 years ago, they'd say, oh, well, we can't do that. You know, that's too much prosthetics and everything else. And they just make a set or make make this backdrop. Yeah. Um, and you see movies from like the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, even the 90s, where you think, oh, man, this does not hold up just because the special effects look so cheesy. And this I mean, I've never seen uh, Forbidden Planet on the big screen. I would love to see it on the big screen. I would just you know, marvel at um, my favorite sequences where they reveal the uh, the Krell base. And, you know, it's like 20 miles this direction and 20 miles that direction. And you have so many shots where the characters are just dwarfed by this landscape. And, um, you know, presumably that's done, um, you know, with a backdrop. Like it's mm. in camera and they've got, you know, it's not a backdrop. It's like a, you know, map painting. Uh, map. Yeah. Yeah. But but they've also got like uh, animated things like, you know, I mean, they've got in that big shaft, there's like stuff running up and down it. And so many, you know, there's like the footprints of the monster that appear and stuff like that, that I just think I'm not even sure how they did this. Um, so, I mean, the special effects hold up. I mean, and I find that all of the sort of like antiquated stuff, and I'm sure we'll get into some of it, is just totally charming to me. I'm just totally charmed by it. There's nothing that's sort of antiquated that I think, oh, you know, here's the, uh, you know, like uh, drug dealer guy, uh, you know, or something like that. Um, I'm just utterly charmed by it. What about you? No, it's it's uh, it's interesting that for a long time, this I sort of put this in that camp of uh, kitsch nostalgia for me. I, sort of, I saw this in that same, uh, the same vein as the sort of Sinbad films and, um, you know, fil films of that era that, you know, like I say, the sort of like the practical effects and that sort of thing, which which I'll, we will get into, which are really stunning. But um, it going back to it, I realised how, like you said, how actually good this is, that it's not just a sort of, a, you know, I, I mean, I, I saw this on like Sunday afternoons as a kid, sort of like, you know, on BBC Two and that sort of thing, but seeing it on um, in a HD and it, you're right it does it does hold up I mean it looks stunning the matte paintings I'm always impressed by matte paintings I always find them the whole process fascinating um and it does it looks good it's the sets are um they're very very of their time but again like they're they're really good they're really well done um I do find at times it takes itself a little serious but overall I do you agree I would say charming is a good description. Um, 
and I, again, I'm, I'm impressed by the imagination that's gone into this. Um, there's a few things I would probably question, but you know, the the idea of this sort of things that clearly, and the the first thing that hit me uh, rewatching this, uh, considering I've been sort of dipping into original series Trek um, recently, is mm. all right. So this is where Gene Roddenberry got his ideas from. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have notes on that, too. I, I thought um, it, it's stunning how much this almost serves as a as an early Star Trek pilot, like before the cage. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they mentioned the United Planets. There's that weird teleportation sequence. I, I, you know, I, I, mm. I'm kind of confused by what what they're doing, but they, they have a teleporter, even though they land on a planet. They have phasers. Uh, you know, I mean, they have the effects of that. There's like even red shirts. There's a view screen. Um and it, it does seem as if, you know, this really is almost a Star Trek pilot. Uh, yeah, I say all the elements are there. Like, even the crew, like you have, there's almost like the, you know, um, as I hear referred to as the best friends gang. You know, you've got the sort of the commander, <laughs> the, ca- the captain, a doctor who's his best friend. And then you've got these other characters that sort of like, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, it is. It's, it's, um, it is. It's surprising that there's no connection other than I'm sure. Gene Roddenberry watched it and was like, "That I want to, you know, build on that." Um, but again, like I say, it, 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 there's it's obviously it's be, being sort of you know obviously quite post World War Two. Um, the idea of a n- almost like non militaristic um, military force, like you know, traveling around the the, the cosmos, um, you know, investigating and making sure that other people are safe, these colonists and stuff. It's it, it feels sort of that sort of 50s, you know, um, it could have been a lot more aggressive. Do you know what I mean? That I, I feel they're not, they're not like, um, mm-hmm. the guns they have are for self-protection. They, they use them as a, you know, they're a sidearm for the, the commander and the doctor and all the other crew members. But at no point, you know, they could have easily had this where they come just marching off the ship in military fashion and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. Like That's almost how I'd expect this film to be like today, mm-hmm. um, but they are almost like they're portrayed almost like as a, an investigative, um, you know, sort of reconnaissance force. Even though they say like, "Oh, I know we're, you know, hundreds of thousands of light years away from from Earth." It's it's uh, it seems like some brave choices were made um, making this film. Yeah, and you don't really find out anything about this United Planets, right? Mm. I mean, obviously, it's uh, sort of episodic. Um, uh, in, in the sense that, I mean, it feels like sort of Star Trek in that, in that sense too. Um, but you're right. I mean, I, I think not only is it not, I mean, they follow military command structure like they do on Star Trek, but you're, I mean, they're, you know, one of the characters is his primary concern seems to be getting alcohol, you know, and, uh, you know, I mean, they're hitting on, you know, this girl Alta and, um, you know, I mean, that's also very Star Trek. Um, but, the, you know, it's remarkable hearing you talk. I thought it's remarkable how little sort of patriotic jingoism there is mm. for this period. Right. I mean, because you could easily have done this and, you know, there'd be like, you know, talk about, you know, on Earth, we believe in democracy, you know, yeah. or, you know, this kind of just kind of dumb jingoism of the post-war period. And that's not there. Well, and there's an opportunity for that. I mean, well, you know, to jump forward into the plot and when we get to it is. Um, when it's revealed that uh, Dr. Mobius has had um, 
access to this incredibly advanced alien technology that's you know it's it's boosted his brain power it's allowed him to build robbie the robot and survive on this planet and all this other stuff and he actually says to them he says uh, so jo- the commander uh, Leslie Nielsen, John Adams, says, "Oh, we've got we've got to take this back to Earth. This is fantastic. You know, all this technology that we can use." And uh, Doctor Moby steps in, is like, "No, you know, I will dictate when this can be sent back, and what I will basically drip feed it back to Earth." And mm-hmm. whilst they're challenging them on it, there is none of that jingoistic. Um, challenge that there could have been again it could have gone a very different route of like you know you you are not one to dictate to us and we could save millions of lives and rah 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 it could have gone a very different tact um but at no point right absolutely yeah i mean the, and that is the perfect place where you could have inserted that mm. right and that's it they like say it feels like they could have gone down that line they could have been saying like you know um that militaristic you know, think of all the things we could achieve with this kind of thing, which you probably would have seen and you will see in other films of this period. So to hold back and to have that restraint, like the, the film clearly has um, a certain message that it wants to convey uh, around that. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, I mean, I think that a lot of uh, the sci-fi that I really love from, you know, earlier periods, I mean, it, it is it's even true of like Planet of the Apes, right? I mean, uh, Planet of the Apes feels very episodic. I mean, it feels like a Twilight Zone episode. It's mm. just longer and really good. Um, you know, I think that's true of, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, earlier uh, movies. Um, I, I think, you know, I mean, King Kong is just as pulpy as this, probably more so, and people don't have any problem acknowledging that as a classic. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I guess that, uh, you know, it does have that very episodic quality and, and maybe that's a, that's a, uh, um, thing to ding it, uh, for some people, but, uh, I just find it a, a, you know, a very charming story that also, uh, has, has, you know, like you said, a sort of unexpected depth, um, you know, it doesn't have that militarism. Um, you know, there's, uh, obviously a sort of psychological view here. There's a, a kind of literary view. I mean, the whole thing is uh, pretty clearly modeled on the Tempest. Mm. Um, and in fact, in your you had the Freudian slip in uh, um, describing the plot where you said an island instead yes. of a planet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Because it's it's Prospero, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I love the religious stuff too. Uh, you know. Well, I agree. There's because there are so many levels to this that you can you do pick up and things and, and you know. Um... In the research, you know, you find out more about sort of its links with the Tempest, and it's quite interesting to see people try and sort of um, the the main characters. Of, so I say Morbius being Prospero is you know, the obvious one, and his daughter and that. But then everyone they try and sort of uh, as it, it's Caliban, they sort of people saying, oh, it's this character, it's that character, and so it's, it's not. There's no direct correlation, but you can definitely take out the similar themes. Um, and I do like the idea of, of you know, Morbius being this sort of. Not quite the the sorcerer that Prospero is, but like that advanced being, like he clearly is smarter than this. Um, you know, this this they are quite militaristic, but this space crew, like he he has a better handle on what's going on than they do. Um, and so it's it's interesting that he does. You know, the, he's he's played with almost like indifference rather than arrogance. I don't know about your thoughts on that, but I always find he's, he's interesting because again, they could have played it with this almost like. Um, 
contempt. You know, like he's well, I'm 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 just better than you now. I've advanced beyond your you know ridiculous notions of um, whatever. But he's never that. There is always that sort of element of all right. Well, I've gone through this, but I've tr- I'm trying to sort of better my humanity, but it's still there. Um, which I find Mobius an interesting character in that respect. Yeah, and I think that fits with your point about it not being um, militaristic. It Also, it doesn't really have a bad guy. Mm. I mean, obviously, uh, Morbius is the um, antagonist, but he's, you know, he seems a little arrogant, but he's clearly not evil. Mm. I mean, he winds up, you know, uh, you know, having created the monster that, that's threatening the planet, um, but it's literally unconscious. I mean, it's not intended. He's not. Um, uh, he's not a bad guy. And even when he, you know, he's clearly with he withholds information and then kind of rolls it out slightly over the movie. And you you know that he's holding back yeah. and he knows more than he's saying. But it's not malicious. And and you can easily see how. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you are. Yeah, already a, a genius, and now you got a brain boost, and you're twice as smart. You know, you might be a little arrogant about these people coming to rescue you, who you don't think uh, are required. Um, you know, it's sad this crew is dead, but uh, we don't need my daughter, and I don't need rescuing here, and I'm actually doing very important work. And thank you very much. Yeah. But you know, bugger off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it's it's it is interesting. I mean. The one thing I sort of, uh, I, when I got to the end uh, of the film and I, I thought back on what um, Morbius is doing is this concept of, you know, yeah, he, he's advanced himself. He's obviously built uh, advanced technology in both his uh, home and Robbie the Robot and other bits and pieces based off the alien Krell technology. And he, he has this notion of, okay, well, now you're here, I'm going to drip feed this to you know earth like we'll give them bits and pieces like all right I'll, I'll show them how to make robbies you know you can have lots of robots or whatever but if that if that um exploratory you know uh, ship had never turned up would he ever have remade contact with earth to start sharing some of this technology or would it have just been lost to time and you know forgotten yeah i think that's an interesting question i've never contemplated that um my guess is he probably would not have made contact with her although you know the he certainly not for himself um you know the whole business with the daughter is very interesting Mm. um and we'll get into that but i mean there is this discussion of uh her expectation that she's going to go to earth that she's not going to be raised just by her father alone and she's clearly of the age where you know she has you know already become a sexual being and she's an adult and she has had no human contact except for her father and you know this robot who provides everything for her um and i think you know that's often a source of um you know, a bit of charm for me, um, especially the bathing sequence where um, she's bathing in the nude and she seems to have uh, no embarrassment. It's very much a sort of reference to Eden Mm. and sort of before the fall, as is the whole like peaceable kingdom thing with the with the animals uh, not being scared of her. Um, 
then there's a weird tiger that like attacks her um you know presumably because she's become sexual now yeah which is a little strange but um but yeah i mean it seems as if um i keep wanting to call him prospero <laughs> but morbius uh, uh you know has has sort of promised her that they're either going to go to earth or he's, he's going to send her away to earth but uh, you can tell he doesn't really want to do that. I mean, he wants to stay there and devote his life to science, and he doesn't seem especially keen on getting that technology to Earth. If, if for no other reason, then that means somebody's going to come and bother him, right? Mm. You think so too? Yeah, no, I agree. I was because I did wonder sort of like because when he does say uh, when there's that conversation later in the film with between him and, and uh, Commander Adams about this sort of the notion of giving up the technology or drip feeding the technology, even that drip feeding seems reluctant. You know, it's, 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 um, he says, well, I, I will rely on my own con conscience and judgment on as to what I will give up and when sort of thing. Um, and, and that sort of was, was almost like a, all right, I'm sort of caught between rock and a hard place here. I'm going to have to negotiate or I'm going to have to compromise. And the compromise is, mm -hmm. I will tell you when you can have this technology. Um, which sort of tells me that his initial position was you're not having any of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but again, like I say, with his daughter, there, there clearly has been, like, she understands, she's not, um, she's not shocked to see other human beings, but she has, and she obviously has a concept of Earth, um, but then she has no concept of almost like social uh, norms or social graces. And so there are several things that sort of, <laughs> It's, the bathing scene is interesting because she 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 seems pretty clever. Like she's quite astute. Like there's a, there's actually a conversation between her and and Commander Adams at one point where uh, she's been kissing and cuddling with some of the crew, and she's like, "And you know, I don't see what the problem is." <laughs> and his response is like, "These guys have been locked up for a year and a half <laughs> with nothing to do. Like this, this is a fully male crew, and you know, you don't understand that sort of." You you are basically sort of um, putting your she, it's it, he is almost telling it you're putting yourself at risk by um, tempting these guys, but he almost turns it around on her and says it's your own fault, which is where I think that you know it, of its time it becomes difficult. But she picks up on it and she says, okay, well next time then I want a, a dress that covers you know all the way down to the floor and it covers me up and da da da. So she's not she's not daft. Like, you know, she she clearly mm -hmm. is quite astute, but she's naive. And so, again, like, you know, she 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 could have been played as a ditz, as a bit of a uh, a fluff piece. But they, they clearly, even though there's some there was some blatant sexism in this, they still try and give her a little bit of agency, like a bit of independence in the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. She certainly I mean, nobody would watch this and say she's stupid. No. Right. Um, you know, she's clearly intelligent. She's clearly, um, supposed to be innocent. Um, but you're right. She, she is, uh, astute. I mean, she's not, she's not dumb. Um, she's also apparently had access to biological records. Mm. So she certainly, she understands reproduction. She just doesn't know. I mean, I think the kissing scene is sort of funny, like, you know, how, she just doesn't react over and over again. It's like, uh, this is very strange. Um, but I mean, and you're right. that uh, uh, I mean, obviously it's a little, it, it seems a little sexist that she would, uh, 
you know, one of the most important things she does in the film is uh, craft a dress, you know, to please uh, a man. But it's all sort of charming in the sense that she doesn't seem to understand really what's being said. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's very strange, uh, the treatment of her, uh, you know, also the way that she... Um, um, you know, falls in love. She just seems very abrupt, right? Yeah. I mean, the the tiger attacks her, and then she's fallen in love. And it and this character who seems, uh, in some ways, rather feminist. Um, in, in and I agree with you about that sort of uh, implicit, like it's your fault, yes. right? Like these yeah. guys, they can't control themselves. You know, uh, you're not wearing a burqa, so what yeah. do you expect, right? <laughs> um, but uh, on the other hand, um. You know, there, she seems very feminist in the sense that she's not embarrassed by nudity. She's clearly aware of reproduction, feels no shame about that mm. in particular. Um, you know, she, uh, um, you know, does seem, uh, you know, naive, but also confident and intelligent. But then love brings her down, right? I mean, this is the classic sort of, uh, you know old-fashioned kind of noir thing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, a woman can be intelligent, she could be the best doctor in the world, but then she falls in love, and then she, like, all I want is to be a housewife to this wonderful man. Yes, yeah. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Like you said, throughout the film, she shows a level, you know, she, like you said, confident is a, is a good term for it. But she has, like, a level of confidence. Like, she's on her home turf to begin with, but, like, she is confident around the, you know, around the... the uh, the crew and around the ship, like none of this seems to phase her hugely. Like she just takes it in her stride, which is really impressive, really. But then, like I say, then all of a sudden, like towards the third act, like she does, she falls in love and uh, with Commander Adams, and all of a sudden, then she's just clinging to his arm, and all that sort of <laughs> that's out the window. You know, all that confidence and that bolster is out the window, and she's now, like I say, the sort of um, she just becomes the female character to save, almost like the motivation for them to to get to the end, which is a little disappointing, but it's also, let's say, it's very typical. That's the way the stories were told. And you know, I'm not using that as an excuse, but it is. That's that's just the way the stories were told. That's the role, that the, the, the female role in these films, I suppose. Right, and I, I think it's also, I mean, it's fascinating um, watching it and sort of thinking about the worldview that it is um, um, expressing. Um, you know, obviously the sort of climax is very focused on psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Monsters from the id, right? And so there's this idea that obviously that's Freudian, it comes from Freud, but there's this uh, kind of classic idea, especially for the period, that civilization is like what keeps us from just going out and raping and killing yeah. nonstop, yeah. right? You know, that's what we would do. That's the state of nature. And, you know, we're sort of forced to be civilized and get along. And, um, you know, here are all of these, uh, all of these rules. And there's even the line, we're all monsters in our subconscious. Mm. So we have laws and religion, right? Yeah. So civilization uh, keeps us from acting out on these things. And so all these male characters, I mean, it is hilarious to me. <laughs> you know, uh, they just go after her. Um the, the lieutenant who no sooner do they meet her than he goes over to her instantly cock blocks the yeah, other two yeah. uh, related, you know, the only two men on the planet who aren't related to her just instantly lies about them to the like, well, that commander can't be trusted, yeah. you know, like 
instantly, oh, there's a hot girl in the room. Everybody converges <laughs> on her and starts playing their, their various strategies. And the commander wins because he's confident but standoffish. And it's also sort of like, um, yeah, like the old comic thing, mm. right? Like the, the team leader always got the girl. Um, but that, that seems to also fit into this idea of psychology and the id that, you know, men are going to want to do this, right? Men are aggressive and just beneath the surface, they want to get drunk. They want to, you know, get this girl. They really can't be trusted when uh, let loose, despite all the civilization, despite hyperdrive, despite everything. Else. Well, that's an interesting point, because one of the things, you know, we say about this film, and again, I mentioned, um, you know, you could see it as misogynistic because, you know, the, uh, an all male crew traveling through space, you know, that kind of thing. And she's the single in, like you say innocent sort of female, but it, this crew is no different. Like it doesn't, you know, this crew is not portrayed in, um, an overly other than probably commander, uh, commander Adams. And even then, but it, they're never portrayed in an overly heroic manner. You know, like you say, um, the first thing that guy does is he does, he goes over and starts to sort of pull a bit of a Tom Cruise, you know, he starts to flash the smile and, <laughs> you know, uh, pull out the one liners and then, you know, the doctor tries it and then obviously commander Adams does it as well. But then you've also got, so that, you know, they're being driven by their lust as in that subconscious, just that lust is sort of under the surface. And then you've got the cook who is driven by his, you know, his alcoholism or, you know, his, or drunkenness. It would be in the fifties, but he's got his own vices, and um, they are flawed characters, like you know, they are pig-headed and they are sort of, um, you know, they've got these vices, and and that you know the moment when he um, is it, I forget, is it the lieutenant or one of them that, that he does kiss um, Alter, and he sort of he, he tries to talk into it, and then he just he just kisses her, and it is it's, it's it just feels like you think oh, okay, I, this crew it could be that you know they should be played or they could be played again as that heroic. Uh, band sort of going across the galaxy to save these colonists but they're not you know they're not they're really not they are basically a crew of navy soldiers that just happen to land in port at this port has got this one pretty girl and a robot that can produce right. whiskey on tap so why not <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um yeah and, and that fits in with with how morbius isn't uh you know such a bad mm. guy i mean like you were talking the crew isn't militaristic uh they seem kind of idealistic, but at the same time, they're very flawed people. Mm. I think the the Navy port thing is brilliant. It, well, it's, it's funny because that's it's the theme, the biggest theme that I got out of this really, and it comes across in that thing of because uh, there's an interesting comment at the end, which really brought to service is that idea that advanced technology can you know we can do all these amazing things, and I, I feel that this is obviously a comment on uh, the advancements of following. Second World War, so like nuclear power and all this other stuff. This is here. You could have all this stuff, this amazing things, you know, and you can say that, yes, I am humane or I am doing this for the best possible reasons, but underneath, we have got all these vices and we've got all these sort of, you know, your, our id is actually going to drive us to use this for the wrong purpose. And that's why, as we are human and, you know, we have to be better to, to use the, the advances in technology that we're coming across. And uh, it, it, it was it's the, the line he used, actually, quite, which is quite funny. He says about uh, the Krell, the thing they forgot is the subconscious. And he says, he says something about being human. You think, well, they're not. They're, they're alien. So they apply, like a, they apply humanity to an, alien, an ancient alien species. Um, 
which is interesting. But it's true. It, you know, and that's the theme that really struck home to me was, that, yeah, we've, even true today, we've got this massively advanced technology. You know, I have got, at my fingertips now, I've got several devices sat around me. I have got the knowledge of the eons, the knowledge of the world at my fingertips. I'll probably look at boobs at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, this is the classic, right, post-war kind of uh, atomic age message, right? Like, we can blow up the world, but we haven't learned how to live with one another. Yeah. but, but, you know, I mean, so it's a little cliche, but it is true. And, uh, you know, um, I, you know, I think about the same thing. Um, like, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, we've got these cell phones. Um, and, you know, it's funny what, um, what ages and, and how you sort of see the representation of technology. Like, you know, th- there is a point where I think like, okay, you have hyperdrive, but, you know, Robbie a robot that looks, you know, I love mm. his design, right? Obviously, he was famous. He was reused forever in every single show, right? But uh, he looks like he was designed by the Michelin yeah. Man, you know? Um, you know, you mean to tell me you have hyperdrive, but, you know, Robbie is just beyond known tech, yeah. you know? Um, and, you know, he can, he's can. he got a food synthesizer. I mean, there is some advanced stuff. He knows lots of languages, but he's still looks kind of primitive and it reminds me of how like you've got um a, you know uh tablet computers in star trek the next generation mm. right but we have those yeah. now yeah. you know uh and you guys have like light speed and teleportation <laughs> right you, you guys got the sequencing a little wrong here um you know and so i i think of that when i think of you know okay so we don't have um the teleporter right i mean we don't have uh outer space travel we're not flying on rocket ships to alpha centauri yet uh and when we do it certainly won't look like a a, a 50 <laughs> flying saucer but uh you know but having said that i mean the the cell phone we got cell mm. phones right i mean um you know we got reliable vehicles that uh you know have better gas mileage than anything we could imagine i mean we have uh so many advantages i mean life is food is better i mean 50 years ago 70 years ago you know half the steak you got was filled with sawdust (laughs) um so you know i mean life is so much better but then you think oh um yeah i mean what are we doing i love video games but you know we're watching porn and playing video games (laughs) you know it's not exactly uh, what we were promised. No, it's tr- it's true, and I think that's the thing. Is like you say, it's th- this film is. I think this this film remains relevant for that very reason, isn't it? Technology is always going to be prevalent. Like it's just a part of our lives now. I mean, the fact of the matter is that you and I are sat down now, and we're what six hours apart. Um, you know, by time zones, but we are using a website to talk to each other online. You know, and record this podcast. Like the technology is amazing. We've got some real crazy advances yet as you say we're still relying on like plastic carry bags or fossil fuels and <laughs> i mean i'm not going to start kicking on the, the environment message but you know this sort of th- you do think like okay we're probably pressing our advances in the wrong places <laughs> at times um and that's what this film is saying it says you know right. i could give you the world i could give you you know eons worth of technology but you're probably going to you know um use it poorly well, it's, it's, it's the old adage that, uh, I mean, even if we don't go in for the sort of 1950s um, full extent of, of that sort of view of humanity, I mean, we are animals, 
And the primary things that humans do are, you know, we eat, we shit, we have sex, right? I mean, these are primary drivers. Uh, You know, the idea that we are talking about art or thinking about philosophy or, you know, upset that we haven't gotten to another (laughs) solar system yet, which angers me every day, um, you know, is uh, not our primary drivers. And, you know, I mean, that's a problem. Uh, and it is a problem, but yeah, I mean, you know, this is that kind of classic theme, like, um, you know, I mean, I don't know that I really agree that, um, you know, there is this separate id underneath everything that just is waiting to go insane. Mm. And, you know, it's a separate, uh, unconscious that, uh, the most, you know, it, it also sort of reminds me of the Vulcans, right? I mean, like the most sophisticated, um, you know, emotionless, advanced civilization, you hook them up to a device that makes thoughts reality and they're going to conjure, you know, like a rape and kill monster, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, it is. It's, it's funny. I mean, you know, they, they obviously have tried to do this. That, that analogy, actually, the Vulcans is really, is, is obviously really relevant with this influencing um, Star Trek. And how often did they do that in original Trek or even like down the line, this thing of sort of like, yes, well, the Vulcans are pure logic and they've reached a point in their philosophy and ideology where emotion doesn't involve it. But does he, you know, Spock's half human. So underneath that, it's the human part of him that is his flawed side and it's sort of simmering with rage all the time and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, sometimes handled better than other times, but it's true, isn't it? This, this idea that they have to try and make it almost the uh, that alter ego that okay, you've got your ego or super ego, as they explain in this, and then you've just got this id. And it goes back to the simple things of, like, Jekyll and Hyde or, you know, that notion of the extremes mm-hmm. of, like, in social... Contra- in, you know, it would, This and those similar things would have you believe that um, take away, you know, any sort of form of social mores or social sort of, like, uh, construct. Like you say, we would just be animals that would be, like, raping, pillaging and killing each other and... I just don't think that's true. Um, it's yeah, one of the things. Like, I enjoy the Purge series. I think that you know, there's some there's some yeah. merit in that film. I think they're quite entertaining and they're very silly. And you know, I can't see that happening. Do you know what I mean? The Purge. I'll be perfectly yeah. honest with you. Given the opportunity, I honestly think majority of people are just too lazy. Where they're like, oh, I've got to be up <laughs> committing crime all night. Oh. I can't miss Game of Thrones. I've got stuff planned. I know. I'm not going out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a very British view of it, right? Like, you know, well, we have the right to do these things, but, uh, you know, we'd have to get off the couch and, and stop That's watching. It, yeah. uh, well, you know, if, and if it was midweek, I mean, granted, if it was the weekend, it might be different. We'd have just, the other thing is, if it was, if all, if all, if it was Britain, if all crime was legal, Everyone would just go to the bar and just drink. That's what would happen. There'd be no crime because <laughs> everyone's being a stupor by ten o'clock. So it'd actually probably be the quietest for the time for the police at all. They'd be like, oh, okay, they've just broken into a pub and drank everything. Leave them to it. Um, and then myself just sat at home thinking, oh, like you say, it's a bit, it's a bit cold outside. I'll, and I've, and I've, uh, I've got a bit early in the morning to walk the dog, so I can't be bothered to be honest. Um. But yeah, no, I just don't believe. I just don't believe right. that that id is that prevalent. I could be wrong. I might be, you know. But no, I know. No, I mean you're right. And 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 there are. I mean, this gets down to. I mean, 
I, I, I do want to talk about religion because I mean, I think it stands out so much in this film and, you know, one of the founding, you know, the arguments of the, the era of the founding fathers of my country um, was that, um, you know, religion, you know, most of them, you know, were not mm-hmm. Christians and they believed that um, religion served a social function, that it had exactly this kind of like repressive, cohesive benefit, right? It brought a community together and kept people behaving mm-hmm. better, um, which is which is really a view articulated by this film. Um, but we actually do know that, um, you know, people who don't believe uh, don't behave any worse. Um, and, you know, religion does give people the excuse to, it, it may not make people behave worse, but it certainly does allow them to excuse some of the worst behavior the, the planet has ever seen. Um, so I, I, I mean, we, we do seem to know now that uh, we have a kind of like moral compass in our brain, mm. right? I mean, dogs, there are these experiments with dogs where, you know, they, uh, we, you know, are shown puppets and one puppet is nice and helps the other puppet animal and the other one is violent and the dogs will bark at, you know, the mean hedgehog. And then when the hedgehog shows up, when the, the owner is there, the dogs will, will bark and like alert the owner. Like that is a bad dude. Do not trust that hedgehog <laughs> puppet, you know? And, and, you know, we do seem to have uh, fairness in, in certain ways uh, in our brain. Um, and, and I, you know, I mean, I, I used to tell my students like, you know, the best reason to be good is so you can sleep mm-hmm. at night. Um, you know, when you're mean to people, when you're a kid and you grow up and you're an adolescent, you kind of start, you know, you get a little older and you start realizing like, yeah, you know, I could steal, you know, these five dollars that's just sitting there, but um, I'm not going to feel good about it. I'm going to remember that for years. And what did I get out of that five dollars? Yeah. Um, you know, this the, the purge doesn't make me feel good. I'm going to remember these horrible <laughs> things that I've done. They're not going to they're going to haunt. It's, me. it's interesting. I agree. Because just because you're allowed to do them doesn't mean that you know, like you say, that you can do them. Um, it's funny that there was, I, um, I listened to a podcast a long time ago that's all about this. It said, actually, there's a, there's an evolutionary reason for acting uh, morally, you know, for acting right. Because if you are seen as acting um, beyond or, you know, counter to a group's morals, then you're going to be ostracized. You know, they will, that group will push you mm-hmm. out, you know, whether it be prison or whatever. Um, and from an evolutionary point of view, like you can't survive on your own you need to be part of a social group so actually to to act you know in accordance with the morality of that group actually is also it has an evolutionary driver of like okay well if i'm going to survive my genes are going to survive i need to be a part of the group um so there's you know i say there's this psychological you know and, and sort of evolutionary reasons as to as to why why the id isn't just our sort of raging um almost default setting Right. I, I agree with that. And, and there are also like, I mean, there are these, you know, you do the experiment where you say you don't know what the other person is um, going to get and you either lose all the money or, you know, if, or they could mm. take it all. Right. And, and you find out that, um, you know, it's round about, you know, 60, 70, 65, 70 percent of the time. If the other person gets that amount of the money, uh, you know, because they have the advantage position in this game uh you think okay that's close enough to fair but when it starts getting up to like 80 
people will say, no, I'm throwing away my money rather than let you get take all of this. And there seems to be these thresholds like that, that I mean, I think you're completely right about evolution and the, and the social role of this. But I also think there seem to be these kind of like thresholds at which um, just, you know, societies have to take care of people. And if you feel as if this is just fundamentally unfair, you know, you start getting revolution, right? You start getting uh, violence and people just saying, well, why should I be uh, following the social contract if, you know, I'm getting uh, 10 cents for every 90 that you're getting and we're doing the same thing? Yeah, no, I agree. I think this, there has to be a certain level of equality um, across the board for, you know, you say within thresholds and this sort of thing, for it, I suppose for it to even feel like the, um, that morality has a purpose. Um and again, I think that sort of calls into question a few things that, you know, obviously when you look around you today, this idea of the sort of the social gaps and things, and you sort of wonder why people do get pulled into different things. And you think, oh, it's not, you know, you said, how do you sleep with yourself? And sometimes you think, well, actually, it's probably one of the only avenues they've got open to them in order to feed their family or it, it and it may then be the norms of that group and that sort of thing. So, it you know, it seems, it, it I suppose it's quite a simplistic view um, you know, especially say when you're taking it back to that religious idea as well. Um, the religious idea, is, as you said, using the the as an example, uh, an excuse really for many things is that thing of like, well, within my religion, you know, within my sort of structure, the 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 morality is this, this, and this, and part of that is that yours is different, so you're wrong, and it, so in some cases it actually sets up conflict which are completely contradictory to. The social, uh, the social morality. You're trying to set, you know, well, that thing. You know, they say I'm not going to say ten commandments or that, but you know, it sort of says love thy neighbor and all these other bits and pieces. But it's, one thing I've always said is it's love thy neighbor except those people there or those ones there. Or, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's sort of, um, yeah. It's interesting, yeah, how that sort of can be. It can be shifted to be um, appropriate for whatever group or whoever actually wants to be sort of at the top of the chain on that one. Right. And, and I think that, you know, I mean, these these, you know, commandments and these these passages in our in our holy books or our, our you know, revered uh, sources are always selectively chosen. Yeah. Right. I mean, and they're selectively chosen to justify what we want to do or the way we think things should be, you know, already. Um, but, you know, I think that. Um, you know, one way in which this movie is not like Star Trek is that religious mm -hmm. angle. Um, because it, it's, you know, 99% of the time, it's, you know, uh, Star Trek is an atheistic future. And, you know, Roddenberry was very clear about that. Um, even if not all writers carried that through, there are occasional references, but, um, you know, <laughs> right away when they get to the Altair, you know, a, a crew member says, the Lord sure makes some beautiful world. I just think like, okay, that that's not going to be yeah. a Star Trek, right? Um, you know, they're burying a crew member and they say ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You think, oh, okay, right? Um, and then, you know, there's that line of we're all monsters in our subconscious. Uh, so we have laws mm. and religion, which uh, seems to me to be like when religious people cite this, I think, well, that's as good as saying, uh, I don't believe this, but I think it has social efficacy. So, um, 
and, and then you have the end of the movie where the last line is like, you know, reminding us that we are all of God, which has nothing to do with anything you've just seen. No, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, you know I, I, one of the things is they learn, one of the things they learn in this film, and I don't know, say there's the Federation of Planets or whatever, it's the unit, Unification of Planets. So you don't know anything much about that. So I don't know if they already know of alien life. But they are introduced to alien life in this film. And at no point does that sort of like raise any questions or sort of, you know, anybody sort of it, it waver their their belief system or anything like that. It's just sort of taken in stride a little bit, which I find, you know what you're saying, then they fall back into that position of like, well, God, we are all God's children in the end. Um, and you sort of go, um, okay, well, I'd, I'd like to see what their belief system was and, and you know, what's, what, what would the Krell have said about that, that... They, they appear to have made themselves beings of pure thought. <clears throat> right, well, also, like, well, what does that even mm. mean? I mean, if we are all of God, right? Like, okay, our crew members, uh, if you know, a handful of them are dead. The Bellerophon's crew is entirely yeah. dead. Um, you know, this entire civilization that is more advanced, I mean, they say a million years mm. If humans survive another million years, maybe we'll get to what the yeah. corral are like, right? Where was God for them, yeah. right? Like, you know, we're talking about the, ex not just worse than genocide, I mean, species side and species side of a, of a spectacularly more advanced race that, that has way more right to exist than humans do. And, uh, you know, and we're watching that beautiful world that the Lord sure makes a beautiful yeah. world blow up. And your response to that is, well, we're all of God. <laughs> well, it also raises a simple question of, of it, it, for me, then, it, this is posing the question, or at least the, the hypothesis, that actually as every civilization, as it advances, is advancing towards its own destruction. Because it says, that, oh, humans will, will advance towards, we can advance towards this too. And you think, what, towards annihilation? <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm happy if we don't, thank you. But, is, you know, and that, again, if that's the case, if like, where's that divinity then is it just that's just fate that's just what we're supposed to do it yeah it's uh that that seems more interesting of sort of you know that thing of species side they've completely wiped themselves out and we're then saying but we could get there too and you're sort of like mm, not sure how that, that marries up that comes to another point actually that you really just popped in my head this idea of sort of um the idea of colonialism and the appropriation of other cultures so and it, it's not a it's not a heavy thing in this. It's not you know because that's quite a, a relatively new concept, I suppose, to be to be articulated. But in this, like they are quite happy to go in and say, okay, well the Krell have been wiped out for you know he says two thousand centuries, so it's almost like, you know between two hundred plus thousand years, and we're happy just to take all their technology and we're going to sort of do all this and stuff. But at no point does anyone stop to say, well, what do we know about them? Where's their you know, we, we're literally going to take on technology that we have no idea about or what it was for or what it meant to them or anything like that. What was its cultural purpose? It is literally just almost like a, you know, like a bag. It's swag bagging, isn't it? Go in and see what we can take. Um, <laughs> and that feels incredibly sort of imperialistic and very sort of colonialistic of, you know, that you would think would be left behind by this point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about that because, I mean, I, I, I love this question, but I don't know about that because, um, because I mean, for one thing, they're the, the Krell are the more advanced civilization, mm. right? So, and they're already dead, right? So it's kind of like we're picking through the ruins. 
they don't seem to ask adequate questions about Krell society. Like, you know, what was life like for these people? Uh, you know, they're far more concerned with, hey, how does that brain booster <laughs> work? And, you know, is it really going to kill you? Um, you know, they are, they are, you know, dazzled. And, and, and you know, I definitely feel the sense of wonder at the civilization. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I that I like most in, in the movie uh, is the first thing of the crowd that you're ever shown is, uh, I mean, if you don't count Robbie, you know, as Krell influence is music that, um, uh, that, uh, Morbius mm. plays. And, you know, it's this sort of like discordant, slightly discordant kind of weird, uh, um, sort of music, uh, very sort of sci-fi. Um, and I think he says like, you know, a, a child composed yeah. this, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, there's this constant, like there's so much more advanced, but I mean, hearing, hearing this question about, um, about, um sort of imperialism makes me wonder i mean if if the if the humans um you know have no moral compunction about just you know like let's i mean basically this is like the equivalent of like let's raid king Tut's mm. tomb you know like just smash the door open you know like just take it that's and, exactly you know, that's exactly the comparison i was thinking i was like this is basically like say imperial britain turning up in egypt and north africa and just going oh that's shiny we're having some of that in our british museum you know it's sort of that was the parallel i was thinking it was really was that that notion of just rocking up to a uh, you know a civilization and, and or a culture and just going you know what's that shiny bauble you've got over there how you know we're having it sort of thing that and that's exactly what I was going with it so it's in yeah yeah well you know I mean <laughs> you know they're, they're still uh, fighting over the the Parthenon stones right uh, um, yeah I mean and, and this has happened all over the world but i mean it does sort of imply that um there's no morality that they were there right like if, if the crowd were still around could you really object then if the crowd were like uh you know we're just gonna enslave you yeah. humans or you know we, we want to go to your planet we, we want that water we're just gonna drain your oceans um you know the humans couldn't really object uh, the, since they don't seem to raise a single moral question about you know raiding uh, Tut's mm. tomb here, which is interesting. Like I say because yeah, there are so many other films that do play it the other way of you know the advanced civilization arriving on our doorstep and and you know invading from War of the Worlds to Independence Day to um, I suppose any others really. Um, the one you say about the water being taken, I forget the name of the one that Tom Cruise did. Um, uh, it was very similar to like moon and that sort of thing, but yeah, the, the idea is there. You know, we have this moralistic thing of like the invader, and I know it's obviously used as an allegory, but I just thought it was quite interesting that that idea of sort of the, there's no like I say compunction about sort of like I say raiding the tomb without any consideration. Mean, you know, taking someone's gold is one thing, but you know, taking uh, technology driven by a nuclear reactor from an alien species felt a little bit sort of like oh, okay, well you know. Be careful what buttons you're pressing, because I'm not sure what they're going to do. Um, yeah, it's pretty clear they don't yeah. know either. Um, you know, I mean, Morbius is just sort of, you know, practice trial and error. And, you know, he was like, you know, unconscious for a day and mm. a half after he used that brain scanner thing. Right. So, um, 
there is a kind of like reckless, you know, sort of Indiana Jones sort of raiding the, uh, uh, you know, sort of more intellectual version of that, just sort of uh, raiding yeah. this stuff. At the same time, I mean, if you were there, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm going to go through that. I'm going to, I'm going to wander through this stuff and I might be a little more conscious about what buttons I press, but I mean, I don't know that I would, you know, I mean, I might ask those moral questions, but I'm not sure that I would not uh, want to explore all of this. This stuff is yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's true. And I have to say that you, you mentioned about the brain scanner. That introduces possibly the, my favorite part of the film is, you know, Mobius sits down, or he, Morbius sits down, and he shows he can uh, generate that image, um, you know, of his daughter. Mm. And it shows a sort of like, almost like a barometer sort of showing how um, intelligent or, you know, the capability of his, his brain waves. And then Dr. Osto sits down and tries it and it goes up, but not as far as um, Morbius. And he's like, oh, okay, well, well done. Mm-hmm. And then the, then Commander Adam sits down and it barely moves. And he says, well, it's a good <laughs> job it doesn't take intellect to run a ship, just a loud voice and authority. And you're just like, wow, that's, uh, oof, taking a bit of a dig there. Um, but again, I see Yeah, and, and that, that's very on Star mm. Trek, right? I mean, that's very... That's also very uh, countercultural for the 1950s, right? I mean, you know, when in America in the 50s, the whole idea was the best people are in charge and you trust your government. Um, and there was kind of some countercultural currents, but it wasn't until the 1960s that, you know, it became okay to just say, yeah, maybe those people are dumb. Yeah. Right? Well, it, I honestly feel like this definitely has some sort of like, um, I'd say early counterculture uh, themes running it because they say because Commander Adams isn't, he, you know, he 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 is that sort of shouty leader. Like you know, yes, he sort of has a um, he's shown to be a good man, but he's mm-hmm. probably not as open minded as we will get from Kirk or some of the others. You know, I mean, he's you know he's not going to reach Picard standards, but it is that <laughs> thing of sort of like that. You know, the Doctor Doctor Osto is shown to be a slightly better. You know, more intelligent and probably sort of a you know um, a more understanding person, but even he makes the snap call because he runs off to try and use to get, you know, he runs off to use that brain thing to boost his own um, his own brain power when no one's looking. So again, there's that that vice, that sort of uh, flaw in his character. He's like, oh, you know, well, once I've got a chance, I'll go do it. Um, which again, I find really interesting that like you know, no one in this, no one in this film is particularly portrayed as a good guy or a bad guy. They're just, they're just people, I suppose. Really, um, yeah, and they're all flawed, and and you know, but I think that's, I think that's part of this this sort of like worldview, mm. right? I mean, it, it's that the whole theme of Monsters of the Year that you know, you can have all of this civilization, but you're always. You know, I mean, it's the Frankenstein monster thing, right? It's the atomic war thing. You're always at battle with this animalistic self just below the surface or, you know, integrated at best with uh, displaced into space voyaging. Yeah. You know? I mean, Kirk, I will say, you know, like, I mean, I I am reminded of Kirk with the, the <laughs> Leslie Nielsen character, but I mean, Kirk is a little more headstrong and a little more just like prone to have a, I mean, he's got to have a fist fight every episode. Right. Um, you know, um, and he, he would have been the more aggressive one. I mean, it's interesting that Kirk 
Kirk would have been the one who like, you know, made a beeline for Alpha, yes, yeah. you know, it was like, you, you know, and Francis is on yeah. this planet, you know, I'm getting that. You know? Yeah, he, he would have like, you know, kicked the legs out from under uh, from under Spock and just sort of barged McCoy out the way and be like, no, no, me first, me first. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I go, you know, so, so going back and watching this film, I have really appreciated like how much of an influence this has clearly had on, um, like so many films, not just Star Trek, but like, you know, you can see those sort of um, the cliches or things that we consider the cliches now, um, you know, may not have been born out of this, but are definitely born out of this area. And this is one of those first sort of things of, you know, the um, like that thing that, you know, this is that earth thing you call kissing or that straight, you know, from that sort of thing straight through to the idea of the alien technology that is beyond our advances and that sort of thing. It's, all these things that will come up again and again in sci-fi tropes, you know, do seem to be born. Probably I've realized for the first time, well, in, in this film. Yeah. And then there's also, I mean, the idea of the sort of like alien planet that's in Eden, but you know, there's a snake, yes. right. <laughs> you know, there's a problem. And I also thought of, um, you know, although we've talked a lot about Star Trek, um, you know, that hologram, I thought, boy, that's right out of a new mm. hole. Right, uh, help me, Obi Wan. You're the. Yeah, it looks remarkably similar, despite being, you know, twenty plus years. Early. Well, that's the thing. Also, we'll probably round out with some of the special effects of because I have to say, you said it before, like, the special effects in this are, um, really solid for the era. I mean, I, I love the idea. I love matte paintings. I love the stop motion animation. But even like, you know, what what could be considered silly, like the. Um, the blasters they call them blasters as well that's definitely a star wars thing but mm-hmm. you know the 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 blue um and the red sort of coloring and stuff from the blasters all the way through to the monster from the id when he gets caught in that frame in the like the energy field and it's just an outline i love all that stuff it looks so good um and yes it looks like it's aged but still like i'm i'm so enjoying it that you know when i'm seeing that Oh yeah, absolutely. Me too. Um, and I and I love those those mad paintings too. I mean, I it's really a lost art. Um, but you know, I mean, that's another thing that you know I always enjoyed. You know, even as a kid in Star Trek, was you know they'd go to another planet and I get that wonderful mm-hmm. mad painting. And you know, now they're all updated uh, digitally. You know, in the in the uh, revised original series episodes that they've done, but. Um, uh, but, uh, boy, you know, those map paintings, uh, you know, it's amazing what was done with them. And nowadays they just do it all yeah. digitally and it, and it still kind of looks fake. Um, you know, it looks a little too glossy. Um, and, uh, the perspective is never quite as good as you, you know, you imagine people painting and they would get this sense of perspective and the sense of scale and size that just, you know, the mind instantly is just boggled by and wondered, uh, put in a state of wondered by. I mean, I love even beyond the the the, the Krell base, the mountains around the flying saucer landing site yeah. are just that, beautiful. That that, that scene, um, you know, you know, yes, it's a very fifties looking sort of flying saucer, but, but that actually that landing sequence is great. It's so good because you know it sort of it, it disrupts the mm-hmm. sand. It's got all that, but that matte painting, like you say, it's so well framed 
Um, you know, so when it does land in the middle, you've still got the mountains either side, you've got the red sky, and you've got these bits. It's it's wonderful. It's so well done. Um, and the things I when when I was looking into some of this, the things I found out was that <clears throat> I mean, this is produced by MGM at the time, and they were taking a bit of a risk on this. But when it was being shopped around, and people were starting to see some of the stuff that was coming out of it, they were so impressed that when it came to animating things like the uh, creature from the id and the blasters and that sort of thing. Um, Disney, Walt Disney himself actually gave up the time of some of his animators to MGM for them to go do that the special effects, I mean so this was clearly wow. impressing people in the day as well, so it's uh, it does, it's, th- those sort of things stand up I think you can, you know, it's it's worth seeing Yeah, absolutely um, Yeah, and you know, it, it seems like, you know to me, it always seems silly to praise something for the special effects, mm. right? Because we do that so often and we say, and I think, you know, like, oh, congratulations, you've told me nothing about the story <laughs> or why to see this, right? Um, but, you know, I mean, there are films, whether it's, you know, I mean, I think really like Terminator 2 is largely praised for the for the mm. special effects. Um, you know, that, you know, um, lots of movies, you know, are not just special effects, um, you know, there's more than that, that, uh, that we praise them for, but that does, that is inherently wedded to their appeal. And I think that is true of this movie too. Um, but those special effects just, they work so much and I would take, I will take these special effects over, you know, um, a lot of far more recent, far, far better in a sense. I mean, that monster, you know, when he's hitting the wires and you sort of see this electrical outline, I mean, it does look cheesy and dated, but you know, the blasters kind of, you know, I I find myself wondering, like they're not firing very fast, (laughs) you know, like those bolts of energy, you know, are sort of moving like a hundred times slower than a bullet would. Um, But uh, you know, it still looks cool. I mean, it looks fine. Um, it's you know, I, to to me, it's the same thing. It sort of stands on par with things like Ray Harryhausen. That you know, when he's mm-hmm. when he is at his best, and you see things like um, Jason the Argonauts or something, you know, the Sinbad films I talk about, like you know that it's not as good as some of the stuff that's probably appearing in sort of like you say the you know Marvel movies or the latest fantasy sci-fi film. But there's such an appreciation for how much effort and the dedication that's gone into it, really, for me. That I'm like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just enjoying it. It looks great, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm buying into it. And it's the same thing for this. I sort of think that, as you said before, they couldn't rely on special effects. I mean, in, in digital effects, so everything in this is is practical, you know. And it, I'd say that a lot of it, obviously, is in camera and that sort of thing. And then they've done all the clever film. Uh, camera trickery later on to, to add things or do perspectives and that sort of thing and uh, yeah I just I just think from a, a filmmaking perspective it's really you know you, I've, I've got to respect that level of dedication um, yeah I mean wh- while you were talking uh, I, mean, I agree completely while you were talking I was also mm-hmm. thinking that the, the special effects change the mm-hmm. shot right I mean one of the reasons why you know probably we like matte paintings is that they lend themselves to the wide mm. shot. Um, and when I think about, you know, I mean, if you do a CGI monster like this, um, 
you know, you'll have the shot of, you know, him rippling with energy and, but then you're going to get all these stupid close-ups. We have no idea just sort of like what's going on. You know, the monster from the deep is rising and, you know, it's shot as if it were a human being because you can just do it in, in the computer now. And so, you know, you've got a close up on his face as, you know, he swings a punch or something and you lose that sense of scale. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, the, 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 the you not going for the wide shot and, you know, it's even true in like the, um, you know, Jurassic World versus Jurassic Park that that the original is composed much more carefully because, you know, some of the the dinosaurs were were practical and some were CG. But um, but, uh, you know, there's such a sense of you let them be composed well in the panel, you know, on the panel and the in, in the frame. Um and I always feel, especially with monsters and the fantastic and wide shots, or you see a city, um, I, w I want that wide shot. I want to take it all in and be mm -hmm. wowed by it. I don't want to, you know, cut to these close-ups and, you know, ha have this kind of rapid cutting. Um, it, that doesn't give me a sense of wonder in the same way. No, I agree. I totally agree. And I think it's sort of, um, it's, as you said before, though, it's, it's like a lost art you know, that thing of now they've got the capability to do all these things, you know, in, in close-ups. And uh, as you were saying, I was thinking of certain films where they do it. And, it, you know, I was thinking like the Transformers films, which are horrendous for that reason, that they, you know, where it could be better as a big wide shot and it'd be really dramatic. And, but they zoom in and they've got to show all the bleeding parts moving and this and that. And you're just like, oh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lost art. So no, though, let's round out the episode there. So, Julian, before you answer, what yep. are your final thoughts on uh, 1956's Forbidden Planet? Well, uh, it's a classic. It uh, set the stage for so much to come. And more than anything, it is enjoyable. It's, it's charming. Maybe there are a few sort of, you know, slower parts, but, um, but not painfully so. Um, and you know, if, if you find yourself sort of groaning a little at the at the alcohol or the, you know, uh, treatment of Altera, it's still interesting and well done and well shot and and smart. It's got something to say. Uh, I'm just in love with this movie. Yeah, I've got to say, I think, you know, as a final thought, I think it's going back to it. I really enjoyed it. It's um, it has got its kitsch moments. It's definitely sort of of its time, but it it definitely feels like a, a a step beyond the b movie sort of uh, 50s sci-fi that i'm you know that i'm used to seeing of, of this era so it's it definitely still feels relevant the fact that we're able to talk about it and sort of relate it to things that are going on like this this film doesn't miss a beat in that it, you know it feels that it has something to say it does it in a very clever way and actually like you say but it's still got those fun pulpy elements just to keep you entertained and it looks great so, no, I, I was happily surprised going back to this, and uh, I'd, I'd definitely recommend it to people that want to explore the genre. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a staple. Um, you know, we've started with it mm. for a reason. Um, you know, you can't uh, watch all no. sci, you know, no sci-fi film without definitely. this. I don't, yeah, like I say the influence on this. So anybody, if you're gonna if you're gonna be watching along with us, and I, I think. That may be a way of going with this because uh, 
you know, we are going to be spoiling the crap out of some of these films that are coming up and, and some of them you've seen <laughs> and some you probably haven't. So I recommend that you watch with us. Um, if you yeah, go back and see this and, and do appreciate it as, as to what it's contributed to the discussion of sci-fi and how it can comment, you know, be a commentary of, of society. So that's, uh, that's forbidden planet. Now, Let's just quickly give some future information. So, you know, the, I'm going to be putting out on uh, social media. So if you want to find us on social media, uh, I have to remember what we're called now. So it's uh, obviously sto- stories. It's got to come up now. There you go. So stories out of time and space pod on Twitter. And that's at pod time space. Uh, if you want to find us, we'll be putting out the rest of the films that we're going to be looking at in this season. Um but the the next one we're going to be looking at, uh, Julian. This is one of your choices. So, uh, please explain a little bit. Give us a snippet of uh, Solaris and uh, what we're going to be looking at next time. All right. Well, well, Solaris is a Russian film from nineteen seventy one, and um, I believe it's uh, it's over three hours. Um, it is very slow. <laughs> I'm going to really sell this. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's in Russian. It's very slow. Um, but it is absolutely incredibly influential, um, especially among sort of, um, you know, artsy, intellectual uh, sci-fi people. There's a reason it was remade with George Clooney. Um, you know, the influence of this um, and especially its depiction of, extraterrestrial contact is is um absolutely brilliant and and incredibly influential yeah i have to admit when you first record when you first put it on the list um and you said so you said solaris i had to clarify that you meant the 70s version because i was like oh so we're gonna be talking to george clooney this early into into this the podcast um <laughs> i'm really intrigued by this one so it's going to be an interesting one i think it's going to generate a really interesting discussion so um, just you know, it's available um, to rent on Amazon Prime, um, and I'm sure you could probably find it on Blu-ray if there, anyone out there has got it or on DVD. So check it out. And on the next episode, we're going to be talking about Solaris. Uh, so Julian, thank you very much. I think this is a great discussion, and uh, like I say, I think the next one's going to be a corker as well. Yeah, thank you, Scott. And I, I just I'm so thrilled to be doing this, and I hope that people do. Uh, watch the ones that they haven't seen and kind of follow along with us um, and, and talk to us on social media because, you know, we will uh, respond to that and, and love. Definitely. Her. Yeah. Reach out to f- find us, reach out and let us know what you think about Forbidden Planet um, and any other sci-fi films that you think we should be covering down the line. Let us know what you're the ones that you want to see us talk about. Okay. I, I've already secretly started forming a short list. <laughs> to, be, to be honest, so have I. So I think this is, we, we, we've got a long, <laughs> long way to go. There's some fantastic films for us to cover. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, s- some are probably up there as being sort of well worthy of discussion. Some, I just think I, I want to talk about this film because it's ridiculous. So <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, guys, thanks very much. And we'll see you next time. the streams.